So we live in a world where there's a lot of gray and everybody's expected to live in the gray and accept the gray. Everything's complicated. We need our experts to make their way through different complicated things and then we just need to sign on to which experts that we, like lemmings, just choose to believe. I see an increasing number of things on social media indicating that people are wrong to do their own research and that conspiracy theory, theorists are just so crazy. They do their own research and find these crazy conclusions. Oh man, we are in bad shape whenever thinking critically is something that is shamed. I'm on a weekly basis trying to preach and get people to do to use these brains that God has given them. And these brains, they're wonderful. Sometimes they can discern that things are really complicated and there needs to be some nuance and that a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to work. But there are other, you know, these brains, when we use them, we find that there are lots of situations that are very clear and there is no room for people to believe otherwise. So um, sexual exploitation of children, very clearly wrong. Very few people would argue with me that, that it's clearly wrong. And if they argued with me, they would be, <laughs> I'm, I'm very concerned about their soul. First Corinthians 5, that's what we covered in worship on Sunday. That's what you're going to listen to now. It deals with another moral issue, very specific. A man having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, still frowned upon in our society despite our licentiousness, although not as frowned upon as it once was. It was frowned upon in the ancient world as well, and they're tolerating this uh, behavior that's whew, not good. And so what we're going to spend our time doing in this uh, this session of our podcast is going through this analysis that leads to a not a gray place, a very black and white place, right and wrong. And it's going to lead to more of that over the coming weeks. First Corinthians has been a very challenging book for a lot of people because a lot of people live in the gray. They want to live in a gracious place where who are we to judge? Well, when you're reading Paul in First Corinthians, that's not really a place that we are afforded most of the time. Rather, we are called to be as he ends up saying in the next chapter, chapter 6, we're called to be judges of the world. Now, in chapter 5, he says, who are we to judge the world? We're not judging the world right now. But even so, we are expected to exercise discernment within the body. A lot of people don't want to hear about this for reasons we discuss in, uh, discussed on Sunday. But it's a, it's a very vital part of being the church that hardly any churches talk about because it goes against the culture, which is very permissive and affirming. The church is not here to per permit or affirm or compromise. We're here to serve as stars shining in the darkness, salt um, in the midst of a bland world. <laughs> we need to reclaim what has been lost. And so to that end, I'd ask that you would listen and, and pray about the content of Sunday's sermon and consider how it is that you can have more clarity in your life and how it is that you can faithfully participate in the body of Christ in such a way that you help to restore the purity that has been lost. So, I hope you enjoy your time with us. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world.
We've been going through 1 Corinthians together. This is our fifth chapter. The, fourth, the first four chapters have established the, the problem and the issues pretty well. We're going to learn more about the particulars in chapter 5. But as um, a reminder, anyone who's missed out up until now, the church puts all of our sermons on our podcast. Just, uh, whatever podcast provider you have, just look up No Water Methodists, and you can go back. I've actually done more homework for these sermons than I usually do, so um, there's some academic quality to these. But hopefully, as in today, when we're talking about the, the leaven of the loaf, um, there are some meanings that you really have to work hard for that I've, I've, I'm working, so I, I can explain it to you today. So make sure to, to do your due diligence as we walk through the text together. There are 16 chapters in this book that all fit together. Remember, these letters were not written with chapters and verses. They were just written as letters to be read aloud in one setting and digested by the assembled body of believers. That's how these letters were written and the, the purpose for which they were. He wrote this to the, the covenant community in Corinth that he built over a year and a half. Corinth was a Roman city. In ancient Greece, it was on an archipelago in a, a trade region. There were two ports very close by that had sailors coming and going. This populace had a lot of wealth, and they valued worldliness, in it, well, as all parts of the world value worldliness. But the particular things that they valued were status, wealth, and wisdom. They, they uh, had different uh, philosophical sects like the, the sophists and the... Um, Oh, Hector, two others that I can usually think of that, uh, that affected the scenario in, in Corinth there where there were different philosophers that would travel around and they would get a patron to support them as they gathered a following. And Paul, whenever he came, he did not come tooting his own horn, but rather preaching Christ and him crucified, which was a scandal to uh, the Jews and, and nonsense to the Greeks. He's disrespected people who are trying to be respectable and earn the uh, good graces of the society around them. And then he's also been picking on them for being divisive. Apparently a lot of people in the church are no longer impressed with or appreciative of his ministry. And they're saying, well, we don't like Paul so much. We don't follow him. We follow Peter or I follow Apollos. And so he's been correcting that saying, nope, there's just those of us who follow Jesus. There, there should be no sectarian stuff going on. And so he's been preaching unity, and now in this chapter he's going to preach the corrective on unity because, of course, you can't hold everybody together when some people are pulling in opposite directions in unholy ways. So he's going to address somebody who has been most unholy and what to do with members of the body who will not be conformed to the image of Christ. So, y'all ready to cover this? Chapter 5, verse 1. He ended last week, if you remember, by threatening them. He, he literally threatened them with a rod. He said, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come with love and a gentle spirit? So after threatening them, he's now going to get nasty and call them out for one particular thing that is just beyond the pale. You know what that means? Just so extreme, it, it, it's just beyond everything else. Verse five, Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So the Greek word porneia is what he's talking about here. Uh, sexual immorality is the broad category 
And if you haven't read the Hebrew scriptures, you may or may not know the vast majority of things you can do sexually are porneia. It's only within very strict confines that you can exercise your sexuality in ways that do not upset the Lord. He, any, porneia is any sex outside of a marriage between a biological man and woman under covenant relationship with God. Any sexual activity outside of that is porneia. In our current time, people focus on homosexuality more than other porneia. The, the Bible doesn't give reason for that. There are many kinds of porneia um, that some were okay in the ancient world, but some, even the ancients knew was wrong. One was sleeping with your stepmother, which is what this guy was doing. He had entered into a sexual relationship with his stepmother, which is icky. It's technically incest, definitely sinful. And let's just ask a basic question here. Should the church be uh, holier than the society around it? Yeah, obviously. And now that's not to say our holiness earns our salvation. That is to say, once you have been saved, you confirm that salvation by a transformed way of life. And that's much more than sexual, but sex is a big part of that. The way we behave sexually is a huge part of that. And if you have an individual in the church who is practicing sexual immorality on such a level that even the world knows it's unholy, then you are ruining the witness of the church. That's what he's writing about, and he is appalled by it. Now, it doesn't matter why someone sins, but a lot of people read this and they just go, this is just a really depraved individual, right? There are reasons why someone might initiate a relationship with a stepmother like this. One being, if there is a lot of money tied to her, and if she marries and gets involved with another man, you don't get that money. That's, I think, the best explanation for why a man would begin a relationship like this with his stepmother. And we have an image in our head with a significantly older woman, but remember, in ancient society, a lot of men married much younger women. So a lot of times, their step, uh, a guy's stepmother might be closer in age to his age than to his father's age. So um, there are natural phenomena that could explain this, but we need to just be very clear on the front end. Does God call us to follow our hearts? So it doesn't matter if you're attracted to somebody. You need to have that thing in your head going, but is it holy? Is it right? And this guy lacks that discernment. He doesn't even care. In Deuteronomy, it's very clear. It's not talking about his biological mother here. Otherwise, it just talk about his mother. It says his father's wife. So this is a stepmother. It's very clear in Deuteronomy. This is a most unholy thing to do. It should not be tolerated in the, in the household of God. This is also one of those things that just goes to show that the law in the Old Testament directly imposes itself onto the New Testament. Right and wrong don't change once Jesus gets involved. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to cancel out the law. Rather, I've come to fulfill the law. So, um, children, what does the law of God require? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. I want you all to be louder with this one. We're going to recite... What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony you shall not covet. 
Now, of course, God's law is a lot bigger than the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are core and key to understanding right and wrong in the world. And just so we're clear, we preach through Romans, the law is not what saves. The law, uh, uh, we're going through this with the kids. If no one can keep the law, children, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need of a savior. So that there, we skipped some questions in there, but the children are being led to understand God's law is holy and perfect, and we who are born in sin cannot keep God's law. We need to understand the law so that we see how dependent we are on Christ for salvation. And that's, that's what the community of Christ is for. The community of Christ is not people who are enslaved to sin. It's for people who have been freed from sin to live for God. And so if they continually choose sin, remember in Romans, Paul said, do you not know that those who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ's death? And when you have been baptized, when there's a death, you are freed from your previous marriage to sin, and now you are married to Christ and his righteousness? That is the community of faith. We're not supposed to be giving in to perpetual, unrepentant sin. We're supposed to be living in holiness and righteousness all our days. Amen? That's the whole point of what we're doing here. When you start introducing unrepentant, persistent sinners into the body, especially those guilty of sin that even the world knows is wrong without Jesus, then you have just discounted the whole witness of the church. Let's go on. You're going to see that he's very clear here. Verse 2, and you were proud. He's not saying they're proud that they, they tolerate the sinner. He's saying that they're a proud church. They've been bragging on themselves. They think that they're experts, that they're mature. And he is mocking them now. He said before, you guys think you're mature. You're just babies. I, I, I still have to give you milk. You can't even eat the solid, solid food. Verse 2, and you were proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So the, the notion, why should they put him out? Let's think about this, because we live in a very individualistic society, don't we? Where, hey, you know what? There's Johnny's relationship with God. There's Chris's relationship with God. There's Spencer's. There's mine. And, you know, he might be sinning. That has nothing to do with me. There's me and Jesus, and there's him and Jesus, and, you know, never the twain shall meet. That is not the biblical perspective. Whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, and I've just got a couple examples. Uh, you remember Jonah? God called him to go to Nineveh and preach to them, and he decided to run from God, and he got on a ship and was sailing to the other end of the earth. Did God punish just him or everybody with him? Everybody with him, right? Everybody, he was about to tear that ship apart, and they finally had to get rid of him so that they could live. Let's talk about Achan. If you've read the, the book of Joshua, after they destroy Jericho, God sends them to the city of Ai, and he, he declares a holy ban on them. He says, you destroy everything. You killed everybody. You don't hold on to anything for yourself. But this guy, Achan, he holds on to just some, some little trinkets. It doesn't matter what. He hides them. He buries them in his own tent. And God, does he punish just Achan or everybody? The whole nation. They go to fight Ai. They get their butts kicked. People are, are, are killed, and, and they go, why, God, are you abandoning us? And God is killing, punishing all of them. He says, you have to kick out of your midst the sinner. And so they have to find who Akan is, and he is indeed removed. This is the God we have. He doesn't let us just have our individual relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus is tied together. That's the whole point of the church. 
There are people who think that they can have a private relationship with Jesus. That is not a scriptural option. The scripture says that we are communally in a relationship with Christ, and the way that we operate is as a community of Christ. And that means that we get together, we talk about the covenant, and then we live the covenant together. And when you have a person in the fellowship who disrespects the covenant by perpetual unrepentant sin, you remove that person from the body because their sin impacts all of us. And if you disagree with me, uh, Paul is going to argue with you more. So get ready. Don't close yourself off. If you disagree here, you are wrong. There is, I don't think there's any other way to read this chapter. So I, I want you to be humble and consider the possibility that you are wrong and that other people's sin in your church, I'm not going to say the sin of the world impacts you, but the sin of other people in your church, in your covenant community, impacts you. So that's why he says, when you learned of this guy in sin, you should have mourned. Not he should have mourned. You all, second person plural, should have mourned because that guy has ruined your assembly. His unrighteousness has ruined your righteousness. Isn't this fun? We're only two verses in. We'll be done by one o'clock, guys. Verse three, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. There are some people who think that we shouldn't pass judgment on each other in the church. Those people are not reading their Bibles. Paul does it later on in this letter. He tells us to do it. He's going to make clear at the end of this chapter, we don't judge people outside of the church. But within the church, yes, we are called to judge one another. Verse 4, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, as it always should be, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, in a literal sense, to destroy the flesh means kill that dude. He's not saying that. This is a metaphor. He's talking about giving over to Satan. Where is Satan king? Is Satan king in the church? Satan is king in the world for right now, and that will come to an end. But it's saying, put him outside of the covenant community where Satan is king. Give him over to Satan so that his flesh may be destroyed. The notion here being, anytime you're reading the New Testament in particular, there's the flesh and then there's the spirit. The flesh is the sinful, selfish part of us. Uh, this guy is bringing it into the church, cannot, cannot be. Anybody uh, ever heard of uh, the tradition of Rumspringer? In Mennonite communities, Amish communities, they'll have young people that grow up in the church, but the faith isn't necessarily real to them. They don't necessarily understand how awful the world is and how sinful and icky and nasty it is. So they let them have a season outside of the church where they get to see firsthand how awful life is outside of Christ. Now, some of them find, hey, I like sin. It's fun. And they stay. And that's a sad thing. But the reality is, uh, anybody ever heard the saying, uh, one spoiled apple ruins the whole bunch? When there is no care for quality con control or integrity in the body of Christ, eventually what you're going to find is that we are no different than the world around us. And if the church is no different than the world around it, what is its purpose? The answer is it has none. Jesus says, take care that you don't lose your salt. You were the salt of the earth, right? Take care that you don't lose your salt because it's good for nothing only to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, right? That's what good the church is if it looks like the world around it. He says, whenever my spirit, what'd you say, Susie? 
the holy nature of God, and the sinful nature of our hearts. Yeah, that's what we just said. Yes, we are called to be holy as Christ is holy. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Remember, this is a boastful church. They think they're advanced and mature, saying it's no good. Don't you know that just a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? This is a teaching that Jesus had as well. Remember, he said, beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. The notion being that just a little sin ruins the whole batch. Verse 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. So what he's saying is, if you are the covenant people of God, your identity is pure and good and holy. You're acting like someone you're not. Have you ever known somebody who's like faking and pretending they're somebody they're not? He's saying, that's what you guys are. As you tolerate sin in your midst, that's not who you are. That's not who Christ called you to be. That's not a redeemed community. Remember who you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a metaphor. So Jesus Christ is, you know, let me, on the window over there, Garden of Gethsemane, bottom left, you see the lamb right there. That represents the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb whose blood atones for our sins and purifies us and makes us worthy of God's kingdom despite our sin. Saying Christ is the Passover lamb for us. The, pa the Feast of Unleavened Bread is tied to the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is what he's talking about here. This, this is all tied together. He says, um, okay, so in the ancient world, in this part of the world, they made bread like every day. And so anytime you made bread, you would take out a lump from the bread, some of the dough, and you would use that in the following day or week as you were making bread. And what they did, you know, nowadays, most people don't make bread first off, right? So we don't even know what this is talking about. But secondly, those of us who do make bread that rises, we, where do we get yeast? From a little packet, right? And you pour it in and you mix it. They didn't have those packets back 2,000 years ago. Where do they get yeast? From the air. Yeast is a, a fungus in the air, a microscopic fungus. It's everywhere all the time. Yeah, there's, there's yeast in the air right now. We can't see it. There's thousands of things in the air you can't see. Isn't that fun to think about? But as you put this dough out, it collects yeast, which then feeds on the dough and grows. And that's what creates this leaven that then you work into the new dough. So Sarah Beth has a sourdough start that... 60 years old, how old was it? 60 years old, we keep it in the fridge, and anytime we cook with it, you feed it. It's like a little creature. And then you put it in your dough, and you hold on to a little bit, and it continues to grow. The ancient Jews didn't do that because one of the, it's a risky thing to continue to let the yeast accumulate and age. It can go bad. And then whenever you're sharing dough from house to house, as ancient women did, then that rot ruin would spread from house to house. You see why this is a metaphor for sin. Sin spreads. And he's, that's why before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, every year they would throw out all the old leaven that had been aging for the last year and they would start over fresh. So that whatever sin had accumulated in the community for the last year was done away with. And that's what he's saying to do right here. You have accumulated someone in your covenant community who is rotten and poisoning the whole thing. You got to start over. 
You got to put them out. You got to purify the body. You cannot keep the old leaven of malice and wickedness in. You need the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Isn't that a cool metaphor? I can honestly say I never understood it before this week. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So this is a previous letter that he sent them just saying, if anybody's doing pornea, don't hang out with them. Verse 10, I was not at all meaning the people of the world, this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So he's saying, you know, out in the world, of course they're sinners. That's the only kind of people there are out there. So if we're called to minister to the world, but we can't hang out in the world, how does that work? That makes no sense. He's saying, I obviously was not saying that. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So when he says they claim to be a brother or a sister, what's he saying? That they're members of the church with you. Because remember, this is a spiritual body, a spiritual family. So we call each other brother and sister. That's, a, that's an entirely appropriate title. If someone is claiming to be your brother or sister in Christ, and yet they are unrepentantly participating in these sins, first and foremost, pornea, do not hang out with them. Do not spend time with them. Do not talk to them. Do not have dinner with them. Because this is like, um, you know, modern day. Here's a good metaphor. You know how in hospitals, sometimes antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria start spreading and taking off? You have to get them out of a hospital. You have to contain them. Because if you don't, that bacteria will spread to other people and kill and will not be contained. And that's what we are eventually looking at in this world. As you expose people to medicine, if, if their body, for one reason or another, refuses to accept it, and their body passes that on to somebody else, then that causes great destruction. And the, the gospel is medicine. We who have these bodies of death, born in sin, receive this supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit and through the gospel, which then cures us of our sin nature and makes us right with God. But if you have people in the body who refuse to be healed, who refuse to let the gospel rework them, they're like bacteria that are resistant to the gospel. And they will grow, and they will spread, and they will poison everything. And you can actually see that this is what's happened in the West, in America, and, and Europe over the last couple hundred years. We continue to tolerate people in the body who are not transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who lived in unrepentant sin and said it's no big deal. That's what became normal in churches to the degree that nowadays it's considered a greater sin in the church to judge someone's sin than to sin. The nature of the church has been so corrupted and perverted that, to be quite honest with you, I don't think there are many churches in America. I think there are lots of buildings that have church written on the outside that are actually Christian, sort of, social clubs. But they are not exercising Christian discipline and discernment. They are not at all concerned with the purity of the body. And they have a bunch of people singing Jesus' name as they're all marching to hell together. That's not for me and you. That cannot be for me and you. We cannot sit around singing, I'm bound for the promised land, and then make room for unrepentant sin in the body. That just makes no sense. 
if we're going to sing Jesus' name, if we're going to follow him and read his Bible, then God help us. We have got to do as he says. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. I quote that like every week. I am not original. Uh, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, quote, expel the wicked person from among you. You see, that's from Deuteronomy. He's saying this Old Testament stuff carries over. We are not called to be the nice. You know, there are some people, they worship the God of inclusion. Everybody's welcome. Everybody can come. Come as you are. Stay as you are. We don't try and change you. We just try to bless you. That is not what you have in the Bible. So, you know, uh, I'm not making a dig at First Church, First Church of God here in town. Their motto is, come as you are, leave changed, right? That's the gospel message. Jesus takes us where we are, and then when we encounter him, we are changed. But when we are not changed, we are not children of God. We are children of the evil one. And if we, the body of Christ, lack the discernment to know who is walking in the light and who is a child of darkness, then how on earth can we do what we're here to do? It's like having a, a dog pound where all the employees are allergic to dogs. It's just not going to do what it's meant to do. You're not going to do a good job. We're supposed to be intolerant of sin in the body, and when we just don't even talk about it, well, then that lets sin grow rampant, and that ruins the whole mission. A lot of people frowning at me right now, so that means you've heard me well. Receive this message, pray about this message, because here's the thing. Here's how I understand this church. What I understand is, let me tell you, let me tell you just, I moved here in 2015. I came out of a hard church setting in Idaho. My ministry hadn't been received well. We got here, and after a couple weeks of preaching, I told Sarah Beth, it feels like these people have been in the desert just waiting for rain, and they're finally getting it. And that's how I've seen the church ever since. And I'm not saying there were no good things about this church or there was no, no gospel. Or, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that since I've come preaching a hard word and a high standard, over time I've seen people be blessed. I've seen people step up. Yes, I've seen some people step out. But to be quite frank with you, I think these were people that were going to be tolerant of sin, who wanted to make room for sin. I don't mourn that they have left. I do hope that they come back. Because here's the thing, whenever Paul says to give them over to Satan, let's come back, he said, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The notion being that when they step out of the church on this kind of room springer we put them on, that they see how wicked and evil the world is and they repent and they come back and we can receive them. That's the whole point of the church, is to maintain the standard and the banner of Christ. When someone doesn't want to do it, they don't belong in the church. A lot of people discern that for themselves. This guy didn't. They have to put him out. As awkward as that is, they have to put him out. But the hope is not, hey, that man can go to hell. The hope is, let's let that guy experience a little bit of hellfire right now so that he can repent and come back. And just so we're clear, does the church practice forgiveness? What if someone sins multiple times? Do we forgive multiple times? 
seven times, 77 times. I forget the way that actually translates out. Hundreds of times, unlimited times, we forgive. The condition is repentance. Without repentance, there's no concern for holiness. We can't. One final thing to meditate on, and then we can go, well, we'll sing, dismiss, and then eat. Why on earth would a church tolerate an unrepentant, persistent sinner like this man? Are they just an exceptionally bad church and, you know, the rest of us across history, we're, we're not tolerant of sin? No. Why do churches tolerate sin and sinners, unrepentant sinners? Say that again, Whitney. To fill the pews. I didn't even think of that one. Yeah, it feels good to just have a lot of people in the pews. Who cares what they believe? Let's just fill out the pews. It looks great on the live stream. Oh, big things happen at First Methodist Church. Church is not here to be big and grow. That is not the, you know, if God wants to give growth, great. Let's grow. But just because something's growing doesn't mean it's holy. That's something about our particular era that a lot of people lack discernment. Okay, I didn't even think of that. What are other reasons why churches would tolerate unrepentant sinners? They're not aware of their own sin. They're not reading their Bibles. Okay. I didn't think of that one either. You guys are, I love that people have different brains than mine. But yeah, a lot of people have been led to believe that they can follow Jesus without knowing what's in the Bible. Isn't that a silly concept? We all know that's silly. And then how many of us are going home and reading our Bibles? If you love Jesus, you will obey his commandments. And to obey them, you have to know them. And to know them, you have to read about them. Well, I listen to Pastor Jeffrey's sermon once a week. That's not enough. Read your Bible. Know what's in there. Why else would unrepentant sinners be tolerated in the body? What was that, Vic? Don't want to hurt their feelings. Jesus was nice. He calls us to be nice to people. I can't, I can't tell, call somebody out on their sin and be nice. Jesus wasn't nice. He doesn't call us to be nice. He calls us to be faithful. So it's not about Jesus. For a lot of people, it's just, I'm just not comfortable with it. I don't like offending people. In which case, you're just putting off. You're, you're making, you are cursing yourself long-term. You're hurting the church for the sake of avoiding a short-term discomfort. Yes, it's awkward. Oh, man, it's awkward. Is it, is it a sin to be awkward? No, it's not a sin to be awkward. Is it a sin to be unholy? Obviously. So we just need to have that clear discernment. There's one other reason when we're thinking about this guy who's guilty of such heinous and obvious sin. Why would he be tolerated in the body? Maybe they're just wanting to have a big movement. Maybe they're just scripturally just unaware. Maybe they, uh, what was the one I just said? I'm tired. Yeah, maybe they're afraid of hurting his feelings. But I think the most likely answer is David's doing this. He had resources. He was connected. And what if she's rich and all that money could come to the church if he just maintains this holy, unholy relationship? This is the situation churches get in. Well, I know so-and-so really isn't perfect, but I give a lot to the church, and that feeds the poor people, and that maintains the ministries. That keep, how are we going to have the church if we don't keep the doors open? You know, we got to tolerate a little ickiness for the sake of the ministry. Nothing makes Satan gladder than that form of ridiculous logic. If we're called to be holy, we cannot tolerate unholiness. Doesn't matter how much money somebody has. 
doesn't matter what business connections they have, how, how loved and respected they are. Yeah, the other thing they came up with in Delaware was we'll tolerate it because we love them. And that's true as well, isn't it? But just because you love somebody doesn't mean they're right with Jesus. And just because somebody's rich and they'll give to the church does not mean that Jesus is happy about that or that it in any way cancels out their sin. That's one of the things Protestants left Roman Catholicism for, right? Indulgences. If somebody knew they were going to sin, they could just give money to the church and say, I'm about to go cheat on my wife over here. Here's $40,000. You're going to call it even when I do it, right? Yes, yes, they said. So that's ridiculous. But that's what we do in the church when we tolerate people who sin and don't repent and don't try and get better. I keep saying that every time because we have these brains that go, oh, Jeffrey's about to kick out anyone who sins. Well, let's just close the doors now because we're all, we're all fighting sin. But the difference is some people are fighting and some people just say, I'm a sinner. I've only ever been a sinner. I, I don't even want to change. In which case, the church isn't for you. We love you. We like you. You might have a lot of money. You might have a lot of gifts. The church is not for you if you do not want to declare war on your flesh and end your sin and walk in righteousness. There are a lot of other organizations that would like to have you. The church is just not for you. doesn't matter if you like the hymns. doesn't matter if you love the people. We're here for a purpose. That's to be God's covenant people, and that requires working together for righteousness. Now, what if that means that we can't have a big, bustling church? So be it. So far, I preach a pretty hard word the last few years. There have been people who've left. This church is healthier than just about any church I know and is carrying more signs of promise for the future than just about any church I'm aware of. I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think our faithfulness in hearing a good word, reading the scriptures for what they say, directly relates to the hope we have for the future. And I know I preach a hard word all the time. And why is Jeffrey so mean? It's because I love you. And it's because I can get away with it when we have great cooking after worship. And that is the sweetness that makes the bitter medicine of the gospel go down.